Our study in the book of Revelation brings us to the letter of the faithful church. And it's a smaller city with a faithful church just holding on and shining for the things of Christ. It's not a mega church. It's not on the cutting edge. It's not on the cutting edge of culture or what's happening in the culture of the church. They're just living their lives faithfully for Christ, shining as a light as Christ has given them. And he is going to encourage them greatly because they have been faithful to the things God has given them. In fact, do you know that the Bible actually speaks about us living a quiet and peaceable life? that it encourages us as believers. We don't always have to be doing the flashiest thing or the, 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 make the big splash, but just living day by day consistently for Christ can really change people around us. That's the call. I want you to read you a couple of verses that speak to that. First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says that you aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work there's certain people you want to tell that to, right? To mind your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you that you walk properly towards those who are outside and that you would lack nothing. So the reason he wants them to live a quiet life, to live the way they're supposed to, is so that they can walk properly to people who are outside of Christianity, that they would be drawn to them. Now, 1 Timothy says something similar for a similar reason. Listen to what it says. This is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, kings, and all in authority. Now, this is Paul in the Roman Empire. And who knows when he wrote this exactly who was the emperor, but saying that prayers and supplication and thanksgiving should be given for all who are in authority. That's maybe a good word for us today, just a few days out from an election, that we may lead, here we go, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So just as Thessalonians says, live a quiet and peaceable life for those outside, so we're told that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God wants us to live our lives in a quiet, peaceable way. People can see Christ in you, the hope of glory, and they would be drawn to you. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvations. Now, in the midst of them living faithfully for him, there is a great promise of deliverance that is given to them, a great promise for their future. And uh, I, I'd like, when we talk about this promise that, that is in the Bible, God says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world to test those that dwell on the earth. Remember, this is in the context of the book of Revelation. A lot of people want to say, well, this is a promise for some struggle that they were going to go through and God was going to deliver them or God is going to take them through the tribulation period and protect them through the tribulation period but he's about to get to the seven year period that is worse than anything that this world will ever see. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall it ever be. The last seven years of humanity will be the worst thing that this world will ever see. And the question that we'll be asking 
is the faith, does the faithful church go through that tribulation? Let's consider the tribulation for just one thing about it. It is a time of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. Zechariah 1.15 says that the day, uh, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, of distress, a day of devastation, of desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The part that we're interested in it is the day of wrath. It's God's wrath. God has been patient and loving and, and long-suffering, probably the best term, with our world, seeing what men do to men and all of the, 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 the lack of justice in our world. And the wrath of God has been building and it will be poured out upon man, those who dwell on the earth during the very last days. If the tribulation period were just a natural form of trouble, if it was just the world's coming apart and there's going to be tribulation because of that and then Jesus is coming back, I would have no problem with the church going through that tribulation. But if the tribulation period is God's wrath on the world, God's not mad at you and we're his bride. And he's not going to beat up his bride before he takes us into heaven that we would have the marriage supper of the lamb. We are not going to be a part of his wrath. If you put that in human terms and a husband was like, I'm just going to you know, be angry with you for two weeks before we get married, you'd probably call off the marriage. You'd be like, if this is the wrath you get now, what's the marriage going to be like? Jesus is not angry with us. Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Now, this talks about wrath in general, but it also talks about the wrath that is going to come upon this world. First Thessalonians 5, 9. And remember, first and second Thessalonians are books about, about prophecy. They're prophetic books. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let's take a look at this passage. We're going to start in Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, now, that's how he starts all of the letters. The angel would either be the pastor or an actual angel that watches over the church and would be a representative for the church that this message would be given to and be disseminated to the churches, to the angel of the church. The church is the word ecclesia. I just want to remind you of that. We'll do it for one more week when we're done here. That the church is, uh, is best described as a council, like a city council that has authority we are an, a council put together by God and we have authority. Jesus talked about whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we do have authority here. That's the ecclesia. And then he says at Philadelphia. Now, the city of Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven churches that we have been looking at. And it was founded as an Hellenistic outreach to other cities. Hellenistic would be... Uh, Greek culture. So they were founded as a city because they were on the crossroads to bring further into Asia Minor Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. So they had, in a way, an evangelical sense that they were spreading Hellenism or the Greek culture. They wanted to spread further than it was. And that's the reason the city of Philadelphia was found. It was a smaller city but it had everything that a larger city had. It had a place that you could be involved in emperor worship. It had temples to different gods that were there. 
All of them were represented in this smaller city. It was a beautiful city. It was a wealthy city as well. Its climate was perfect for vineyards and produces some of the best wine in the world. I took some time today to look at some, you can almost find anything with drone flights over it now. So I took some time today to look up a drone that flew over Thyatira, one of the cities we've covered already, and also Philadelphia. And it was beautiful. You can just see how the vineyards would have wrapped around the hills that are all around the hillside of where Philadelphia was. And it made some of the best wine that was in the world. Now in 17 CE, common era, the, an earthquake devastated the region. Not only Philadelphia, but Sardis was destroyed as well. And the Roman government suspended taxes for five years. That's what they did for Philadelphia. But because they were wealthy, probably because of the, the wine that they produced in the area, they didn't help them out financially. But they did help the other cities that were destroyed by the same earthquake. It was a large earthquake. It caused severe enough damage for them to say you don't have to pay taxes for five years while you guys are rebuilding. We do know that the city of Philadelphia held that against the Roman government. They felt like they were betrayed by the Roman government. And I think the Christians probably were caught up in a little bit of the politics of the day as well, that they felt betrayed by the Roman government. The Roman government would help Sardis, would help some of these other cities, but they won't help us in Philadelphia. Now, also when Domitian became emperor, which he was emperor when this letter was written, Domitian saw Philadelphia as a competition for the wine that was grown around Rome. Rome is a, another place where some of the best wine in the world is grown. So Domitian demanded that all of the vineyards be destroyed around Philadelphia. And they tore out all of the vineyards, which took away their very livelihood, which took away the wealth of the city of Philadelphia. Now, again, the city felt betrayed again. And I'm quite sure that the Christians in the city felt betrayed as well because their lives were completely turned upside down. What had been a beautiful place to live that was wealthy, which was a city of outreach, all of a sudden had all kinds of problems. Now listen to what it goes on to say here then. He says, thus says, he who is holy and true. Every letter starts with a description. Up till now, all of the descriptions have been from a picture in chapter one of the book of Revelation. Walking among the midst of the candlesticks with the seven spirits and holding the seven stars in his hand. He's, he's connected them to each one of them. But this one, he breaks away from it. And instead, he goes to the Old Testament and takes a couple of quotes from the Old Testament and applies them to himself. When it says that he, who we know is the son of man, we know it's Jesus, that he is holy and true. In 2 Samuel 2, 2, it says, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. We know that we are holy by the blood of the lamb. Our sins are forgiven and we're holy. But none of us think that we're holy like God's holy, right? The word holy means complete. It doesn't just mean purity. It means being right all of the time. And right there, that throws all the husbands in the room out of it. You can't be holy because you're not right all the time, right? I jest, right? Just a joke, that's all. But you get the point. There, that, that 2 Samuel 2, 2, there is no holy, no, uh, no one holy like the Lord. And the Lord there 
is the Tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, the four consonants that make up the name of God that means the one who exists, or I am, as it was translated over into the Greek Septuagint, ego ami, I am, that's the name of God. It's those four consonants without the vowels. So we don't really know how to pronounce the name. Some think Jehovah or Jehovah, some think Yahweh. Yahweh's closer. Jehovah is the consonants of Adonai, Lord, put into the consonants so that it would make the word Jehovah, but they were really not wanting you to say Jehovah. They were wanting you to say Adonai. They wanted you to know that. So when you came to it, they didn't speak the name of God. That's why they wrote Adonai down. And that's why here it says, there is no one like the Lord. So if the four consonants are pronounced, it's Yod, it's Yod, Hey, Woh, Hey. That's the way these four consonants are pronounced. Yod, Hey, Woh, Hey. So literally what it would say here, with vowels included, but I don't, we don't know the vowels. No one is like Yod, Hey, Woh, Hey. That's what it's telling us. No one is like the I, I am. He is holy. So who is Jesus? Yod, Hey, Woh, Hey. He is God. It's another point that we find where he is shown in the scriptures to be God. It really is overwhelming as we're making our way line by line, verse by verse through the scriptures, how often we come to passages that reinforce the deity of Jesus. Now, not only was he holy, he was complete, he was holy, he always did what was right, but he was also true to a city that had been betrayed by the government. Jesus says to them, I am holy and I am true. In essence, he's saying, I will not betray you. The things that I tell you will be the things that come to pass. And then he says, he who has the keys of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, if you start reading commentators on what exactly that is, you're going to get a lot of different ideas. They were an evangelical church in a way. They were planted to bring Hellenism to, to their region. So there was an open door for them to be able to do that. And God's saying to, is God saying to Philadelphia, I'm putting an open door before you to share your faith. Paul talked about having an open door to go into a certain region. So is that the connection here? But when we read Isaiah 22, 21 and 22, here's where the words come from. Remember, Jesus is now giving a description of himself based upon the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 22, God is angry with, I forget the name of the treasurer, but the treasurer of the, 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 of, of the nation of Israel. So you have the treasurer of the nation of Israel. He's angry with him. He's replacing him with a man called Hilkiah. And Hilkiah becomes a type of the Messiah. And when you read it, it becomes evident. And it's not just us that think that. This has been thought in, in, in tradition, in Jewish tradition, that Hilkiah was a form of the Messiah. And you'll see as it unfolds here what is said. So he's talking about this new treasurer to the kingdom of David. And in Isaiah, he says, I will clothe him with a robe and strengthen him with a belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. That's the responsibility of your king into the hand of the treasurer. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And now when it is when it shifts and we start to see messianic overtones. And he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulders. So scholars think that this is a giant key ring 
that you would put over your head and over your arm because it was to the treasury and you didn't want anybody grabbing it and running off with the key to the treasury. So it's like you ladies, when you put a purse all the way around your body, you're like, go ahead, try to take it now. Right? You're like, it's not going to be taken. So uh, the key of David was given to the treasurer. And then listen to what he says. He says, the key of the house of David, I will lay upon his shoulders. He shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Let's go back to the words Jesus said. These things says he who is holy and true, who he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So what is he saying to the church of Philadelphia? I have the key to the real treasury. I have the key to everything that's going to make you happy, fulfilled, successful. I am the one who is responsible for it all. That's what Helkiah became for Israel in the book of Samuel. And it's what Jesus is for us. He has the key to the treasury and he opens up the door for us and no one is going to shut it. And he shuts the door for us and no one is going to open it. That's speaking of his sovereignty. God is sovereign. And we define sovereignty a little different than some others define it. Some define sovereignty that anything God can do, he will do. We define sovereignty as God doing whatever he wants. God can do whatever he wants. Sometimes us pastors are guilty of saying that God, God can't do that. And I wonder if God's ever put him going, huh, didn't know I couldn't do that. I was asked about being slain in the spirit. And I said, you know, we don't have any direction in the Bible for it. But if God wants to knock down one of his kids, who's going to say you can't do that, right? Now, we shouldn't start practicing it because we don't have anything biblical on it. But I'm not going to tell God, you can't do that, God. It's, it's not in the Bible. You can't do it. God's sovereignty. He's going to do what he's going to do. And when he shuts the door, that door's shut. And when he opens the door, that door's open. And what an incredible promise that is to us. An open door is open when God opens it. Now, in verse eight, he says, I, I know your works. That's the same thing he says in all of the letters, all the churches. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees it all. He sees the heart. He sees the motive. He knows all of our works. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And now after telling them, I have the key of David and what door I shut stays shut and what door I open stays open. Now he says, I have set before you an open door. To the church in Philadelphia, again, is this an open door for evangelism? Maybe. But when you go forward just a few verses in the book of Revelation to the heavenly visions, John sees a door in heaven open and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you what will take place. And John is up in heaven in the next moment and he sees every tribe, tongue and nation before the throne of God, worshiping God. We're just a couple of studies away from being in chapter four of the book of Revelation. Chapters four and five are amazing. The heavenly visions that we see there. And it starts with an open door. So is he saying to those who are faithful in Christ, I have opened up a door for you and no one is going to shut it. And that door will bring you up into heaven. I believe, and we'll talk more about that when we get to verse one of chapter four, that that's where we find the resurrection, which is a larger event that has the rapture attached to it because all those in Christ will be resurrected and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The, the world likes to think of the rapture of the church as being just suddenly Christians disappearing. Like, whoa, they're gone. 
And that'll be true, but it's a resurrection as well. And what a day that will be, a day of being reunited with loved ones that have died, that have gone on before us and, and suddenly being changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. So it says, I've, I've set before you an open door. We'll also see more open doors as we make our way through the book of Revelation. And no one can shut it. People can say whatever they want to say, but there's nothing they can do to shut it. Once the door is open, the door is open. Then he gives them three things that he gives them commendations for. Every letter has commendations except two, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Sardis, excuse me, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church and Sardis don't have anything good said about them. The Sardis is the dead church. At least I think it's those two. And they don't have anything bad said about them. They don't have any, any condemnations. He doesn't say, I have this against you to Philadelphia at all. But he tells them three things. Let's see if you get excited about the first one. For you have a little strength. God doesn't say to the faithful church, you guys are awesome. You rock. You are so strong and mighty. You are so godly that the power of God shoots out of your fingertips and you change people's lives by the godliness that you have. No, he says you have a little power. Now, by faith, we can move mountains. Paul talking about contentment, which is really funny that it's contentment, says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We need help to be content, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So there is power, but the power comes from Christ. It's not our power. You and I have a little strength. I think that when you walk faithfully with Christ, again, desire to live a, a peaceable life and to know that God uses you as he sees fit to use you. See, he sees fit to use you. But they had a little strength. If, if the faithful church represents the larger faithful church, I do kind of wish it was said, you have great strength. But then again, if we have just a little strength, then we're just responsible for using that strength that we've got for God. It becomes something that becomes very applicable. If I say to you, you have great strength, go out and use it for God. Now that's a, that's a lot of responsibility to figure out what that great strength is and go out and use. But if I say you have a little strength, go and live for God. Now any of us can say, you know what, I can do that. They had a little strength. And then he says, and have kept my word. They kept his word. I love the simplicity of that statement. When God told the church of Philadelphia that they had to do something, they did it. That was it. They kept his word. You remember Jesus said to the crowd when the woman cried out from the crowd, blessed be the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus said, yes, Mary was blessed among women. Yes, blessed. But more so, more so are those who hear my words and do them. And now we find the faithful church keeping God's word. We can only keep God's word as much as we know God's word. And I realize that that is preaching to the choir some to you guys that are here on Wednesday night because you could be doing anything else. But here you are going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Revelation because you want to know God's word and you want to do it. It's not just hearing it, but it's doing it. Blessed are those who hear and do the things that are written in this word. And now we have the faithful church commended because they kept God's word. 
I like to pray about the depth and the power of God's word. It doesn't return back void. It works in our hearts. It's sharper than two-edged sword. It gets inside of us. The Bible says it works inside of believers. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has given us to do. God's word is the means. The gospel is in the word of God, which is the means by which people get saved. They get saved by the power of the gospel. They don't get saved by fancy words. They don't get saved by someone preaching a flowery sermon. They get saved by the word of God being preached to them, the gospel being preached to them, hearing it, and the transformation that comes by the spirit of God. Now, the third thing that they did that they were commended for is they did not deny his name. There was a constant temptation in the Roman Greco world to deny Christ. Emperor worship was pushed on you saying that the emperor is Lord. They would say, speaking Greek, that uh, Eosis, I'm bad at Greek anyway, I shouldn't try. Eosis, uh, Theos, Jesus is Lord. They would say that. But you would take a pinch of incense, you would throw it in the incense burner in emperor worship, and you would say Domitian is Lord, or Nero is Lord, or Caligula is Lord whoever the emperor was. And also you burned incense to past uh, emperors, to Augustus or Julius Caesar, you would, you, they, because it was believed that they became gods. So it's a constant. And also the trade guilds were involved with the worship of all of the different idols. And it would be so easy for you to go, I really want a good crop this year. So I'm gonna go ahead and make an offering to Hermes and believe that he's going to help me have a good crop. That's the way the world did it. They believed it. Things of our culture creep into the church. Things from their culture crept into the church as well. So that some of the churches were compromising. Some of the churches were corrupt because they didn't keep it separate. But the church in Philadelphia had not denied the name of Christ. They had held on to him and they were not worshiping the other gods, no matter what the cost might be. And there's no reason for us to think that if you were in Philadelphia, that you didn't lose something if you, if you didn't deny Christ. But if you were in Smyrna or one of the other cities, you would have lost something if you denied his name. They were living in the same culture at the same time and there was a cost to it. There was a cost to not denying him. Today, there could be a cost to not denying him. More and more, there's, there's a growing hatred against Christians. And the Bible tells us not to be surprised about that. Jesus said, if they hate you, they hated me first. They may hate us just because we're Christians, just because of what we stand for. You may have never experienced it. Doesn't mean it's not happening. It doesn't even mean it hasn't happened to you. you might, it might've happened to you and you don't even know it. So he says, you have a little strength. You've kept my word and you have not denied my name. Well, there's three things we can do. Walk in whatever strength God's given us. Do his word and not deny his name. And, and in our culture, it would be that we would start to think that the things in the culture are going to help us. But instead, we serve and we follow Christ and we live for him. So then he says to them after commending them, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. 
Now, again, there's a lot of controversy on those statements. We're not talking about Jews of all time. I've had someone say to me before, well, God calls Jewish people the synagogue of Satan. And I'm like, way to take the Bible way out of context. If it is talking about a synagogue here in Philadelphia and earlier in Smyrna, because remember, this was brought up in Smyrna as well. If it is talking about Jews that are persecuting Christians, accusing Christians, and Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he's calling these synagogues accusers of the brethren, calling them Satan, uh, synagogues of the devil, then that's a localized thing and cannot be broadened. If God is doing that, it's because they were accusatory. The Judaism was a sanctioned religion in Rome, which means that you were excused from giving an incense to the emperor God or, or to, uh, to the to, in, in emperor worship. You were excused from worshiping any of the other, other gods because it was a sanctioned religion. And so if you were Jewish and you were Christian, I mean, if you were Jewish and you, were, you were, and you received Jesus as your Messiah, so now that you're a Christian and you were rejected by the Jewish synagogues, you believe in Jesus, now get out, and they take you off of the roll. Now you are no longer sanctioned. You are no longer protected. And now you are going to be persecuted because of it. And so they may have, they may have taken their names off the roll. They may have excommunicated them and caused great problems for them. That could be the case. In Paul's writings, well, Jesus talked about it. He said to the scribes and Pharisees who were Jewish, he said, you are of your father, the devil. It's very similar to what's said here. They're, I'm going to make them of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews or not, but lie. Why would they not be Jews? Because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He says to the, to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, because if you worshiped the father, you would accept me. If they genuinely worshiped the Father, they would have genuinely accepted Christ. And so they were now not of the Father, even though they were Jewish, they were of their father, the devil. And so that's what could be said here. He may be saying that. A, an isolated case in history, there was as much, if not more persecution from Christians towards Jews. And in the early Christianity, there's persecutions from Jews to Christians. Now, this may be a reference to that. All persecution for, for what you believe is wrong, all of it, but it happened. And it happened both ways. And it happened rather severely from the end of Christianity towards Judaism uh, for, a, for a long time. Uh, there's something else that might be being said here, though. Uh, Paul talked about also those who are in Israel, but not really of Israel. They were not really Israel. They were Israel, but they weren't really Israel. So again, the genuine person who is, is, a, is a Jew received Jesus as their Messiah. There might be something else being said here though. The Philadelphia is very close to the region of Galatia. In Galatia, in the book of Galatians was written against these legalists who were Gentiles, but, but thought you kept the law to be saved. And they went into churches and this is a false doctrine. They were not Christians because Paul says, you, you, I marvel you so soon have turned away from the gospel to another gospel. It's not even a gospel. 
And if anybody comes to you teaching you anything different than what I've already told you, let them be accursed. So these legalists who were Gentiles, who were believing that by keeping the law, they could be saved. They were, they, they were a false religion. They were not true. And so is it possible that these legalists that followed Paul around made it from the region of the churches in Galatia, not far away from the church in Philadelphia and in Smyrna? They were in the same region. So if this is them, listen to how it reads then. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Because these guys are Gentiles saying that they are Jews by keeping the law. Maybe, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, let's move on to that part, all right? Um, bowing before them. He's not making them worship them, but they will come and bow before him. And again, Jesus is giving pictures of the Old Testament. There are many places, especially in Isaiah, where in the millennial kingdom, there are those who will come and, and bow down before believers who are ruling and reigning. There's some amazing passages actually that talk about it. Now, the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So they're not worshiping us. They're worshiping Christ, but they're bowing down to worship Christ in front of us knowing that, that, they, that he loves us or bowing down in front of the Philadelphians, knowing that Christ loves them because whether or not these are Jews who have excommunicated them and are accusing them of all kinds of things because we know that that happened in other churches, we don't know anything about the Christian church of Philadelphia. We have no, we have no writings about it, no evidence that there was a church this early there. We don't have anything. But in other churches, we have information that the Jews slandered, that they, they kicked them out of synagogues. There's no reason for us to think it didn't happen here in Philadelphia as well. Um, and so you're gonna come and bow down before him that they may know that he loved them, that Jesus loved them. And it speaks of the great love that he has for us. And we are gonna rule and reign with him, which we'll see before the book of Revelation is done. God created Adam and Eve and then gave them dominion over the world. And it wasn't too long before they messed up that dominion. But God will restore men and women ruling over the world. We are, the Bible tells us, a royal priesthood, which is, I heard one pastor say, that's an oxymoron because you couldn't be a king and be a priest in the Old Testament. You couldn't have a royal priesthood. Only Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Jesus was a king and a priest. And the church are kings and priests with him. So he goes on to say then in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, because you have been faithful and you have persevered, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those that dwell on the earth. I don't think that this can be some event that has happened in the past because of the scope of the promise. Let's just think some say Philadelphia went through some trial and God kept them from that trial. Well, let's read it and see if that works. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour. The article is in the Greek, from the hour. He doesn't say, I'm going to keep you from a hour, but the hour. The hour is connected to the tribulation, to God's wrath, the last days. I will keep you from the hour, which shall come upon the whole world. Now, some people look at this and go, well, when the Bible uses the word world, it's talking about their perspective of the world. 
And I'm not going to argue that it's never done that way. That sometimes when it makes mention of the whole world, that it's talking about the region of the world that they're in. Or, or the world, it's talking about the region. But that's not what it says. It says the whole world. It goes out of its way to use a word in the Greek that means complete. This will come upon the whole world. So what is the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world? To test those who dwell on the earth. It is the tribulation period. And another half a dozen times during the plagues or during the, the judgments, that those who dwell on the earth are going to be brought up again. So I believe that this is a promise to the faithful church that we are going to be taken out of the world before the tribulation period. As strange as that sounds, as weird as it sounds, I know it sounds weird, I know it sounds strange, but the Bible's full of strange, weird things that are true. And it doesn't mean it isn't true. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we're told that the dead in Christ are going to rise first and we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. That, I believe, happens before the tribulation period. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55, I want to read this one to you. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. See, the, the, the resurrection rapture is a mystery. And no wonder it's hard to understand. No wonder people grapple with it, have trouble with it. He says, we shall not all sleep, and by sleep he means die. But we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruptible, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? On that day, death will be swallowed up. We will be reunited with all the saints that have ever died with Christ, who will be resurrected from the dead. And what a day that will be. And we will say, oh, death, where is your sting? Now, Jesus says that he's coming to them, to each of the churches. He says he's coming for different reasons. He says, I'm coming quickly. And that's the right way for it to be worded. Not I'm coming soon, but I'm coming quickly. Meaning that when he starts, he's here. The, the end of the world happens quickly. It, it, once it starts rolling, it happens. It's like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. When Lot left the city, city was destroyed. When Noah went into the boat and went up, the water destroyed. When we are taken up, suddenly those seven years begin and he's, he's coming quickly. He says, hold fast to what you have which we are told often to do, what we have hold fast to. Don't let anyone take your crown. This crown would be the crown of life. Don't let anyone take it. And again, if there's a warning to not let anyone take it, does that mean someone can take it? He who overcomes, those are people who are saved. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. They lived in a place where the ground shook where there are a lot of earthquakes, a lot of volcanic ash, which is part of the reason they could grow such good vineyards was the volcanic ash. But pillars weren't very solid. And he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God and you're never going to leave. He says, I will write on him. He's going to write on us. Are these tattoos? I don't know. Some of you guys are really against tattoos. Maybe you don't want to read the next part. I will write upon him the, the name of God. Now, is this the, the Yad-Heh-Wah-Heh? 
Is it Jesus? Is it Joshua? I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God in the New Jerusalem. So we're going to have the name of God on us, the name of the New Jerusalem on us, which comes down from heaven, from my God. And I will write on him my new name. So Jesus is going to have a new name, a name that we don't know. Now, now what's really funny is when you're reading commentaries on it, they start talking about what the name is. Some think it's this name. Some think it's that name. How are we? We don't know it. It says right there. I'm going to write you my new name. We don't know what that name is. There's no way for us to figure it out. Finally, in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So ear check, we got an ear. This is for us. And what a refreshing thing to be looking at the church that faithfully kept God's word, that didn't deny his name, that walked in the strength that they had been given. Three things in closing. Faithful perseverance will be rewarded. Remember, he says, because you have persevered, you're in this for the long haul, I will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. Number two, Jesus is holy and true and never changes. He will never betray you. They were betrayed by the Roman government, but Jesus will never betray you. Number three, we have a promise to be kept from the hour of testing. And I believe that promise. Jesus said in, in John, in, in Luke 21, 34 and 35, I think, he said, watch and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things that will come to pass on those who dwell on the earth. A very similar statement that we would be prayed that we could escape those things. So people say, well, you just want to escape. Yes, you are right. I agree with you. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to study your word today. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. We pray that that we would be faithful with what you've given us, that we would take the strength you've given us, if it's a little or a lot, and we would walk in that strength and that we would li live your word. Your word is what is important and that we would not deny your name. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.